0: Hi, everyone, and welcome again to another podcast, uh, Podbean podcast and YouTube video on the Gaudi Mitzpah's 22 uh, podcast channel. And I'm very excited today uh, because I'm I'm joined by uh, Dr. Daniel Mahoney. And a lot of my viewers and readers are familiar with this book of his called The Idol of Our Age. Whoops, let me get it in front of the camera right there. The Idol of Our Age how the Religion of Humanity Subverts Christianity. And uh, they were encouraging me to both read the book and then to have Dr. Mahoney on. And I read the book and fell in love with him. In fact, my recent blog, my latest blog post called The Falsification of the Good comes from some quotes in this text, which we're going to get into. But Dr. Mahoney, is you are now the emeritus professor, right? That a, is correct. From Assumption College in Massachusetts, I assume?
1: Yes, it is. It's now called Assumption University for reasons I don't understand. Well,
0: it's like my former place used to be called Allentown College. Then it became DeSales University. I guess it just sounds better that way. But I I do. I have a former student who teaches in the theology department at Assumption, uh, Rachel Coleman. I don't know if you know.
1: Oh, I know Rachel. Sure.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So
1: very smart young theologian.
0: She is a very sharp and everything that she knows, her entire genius, she learned from me. I'm just going to say <laughs> it very humbly and up front. Rachel, if you're listening,
1: <laughs> uh, we're uh, we're grateful for that, Larry.
0: <laughs> her claim to fame is that I once threw an eraser at her in class and missed and hit somebody else. So she's very, very pleased with that fact. Uh, all right. So let let enough enough chit chat and banter. Let's get, let's get right uh, right to the book, which is really what I want to talk about. I mean, you are an expert on sort of political philosophy kind of in the history of political thought in general. And you have numerous books on the topic. I don't tend to go through the entire CV of all of my guests. Uh, I just recommend that my uh, listeners and viewers Google Dr. Mahoney if you are interested, or go to Amazon if you're interested in any of his other works. But this this book I found particularly riveting because it, it, it tends to corroborate everything that I wrote in my recent book, Confession of a Catholic Worker, uh, on the nature of, of modernity. So let's, let's kind of start there with the very title of the book, The Idol of Our Age. What is The Idol of Our Age? And notice you don't say The Idols of Our Age. You say The Idol of Our Age. What is The Idol of Our Age?
1: Well, the, the subtitle of the book, which I think clarifies precisely yes. what The Idol of Our Age is, is how the religion of humanity subverts Christianity I think the uh, idea of the religion of humanity is extremely clarifying one. When one sees uh, that uh, the movement, you might say, of modernity, both theoretically and practically, is toward uh, radical anthropocentricity, a man-centered understanding not only of human purposes, but of the nature of the universe, and in the case of the religious-minded who are corrupted by this new humanitarian religion, uh, an, uh, uh, an understanding that the essential tasks of of religion uh, are related to uh, this worldly transformation—you know, where we might say a kind right. of ther- thorough imitanization of the horizon of religious faith and and uh, religious action, and uh, you know, uh, while while the book deals uh, is not centrally about Pope Francis, I think one of the contributions I make is to really highlight the way in which this pontificate is informed, <laughs> at least in large part, by and I, I, this is a very bold claim by a religion that's not our own you know that yeah. this, this mixture of a residue of activist christianity with something really outside the christian horizon an inordinate concern with uh with uh, the things of the world not in terms of the striving for justice but in terms of a uh a radical concentration on uh, social matters, the social question, uh, the improvement of the world. And and at times that can lead to sympathy with open anti-Christian movements and affirmation that are seen as somehow on the cutting edge of this project of uh, uh, humanitarian transformation. And so... um, uh, the remarkable thing, and it's something I stress from the beginning of the book, and uh, it's related to uh, something you brought up, namely the falsification of the good, is I, I make the case that I think the uh, the great theoreticians of the religion of humanity, and they include figures like uh, Karl Marx, but uh, centrally Auguste Comte, the, the founder yes. of the positivist religion of humanity, who saw humankind as the a grand être, the great being, the supreme being. I think they'd be startled that important elements in the Church of Rome, their deadly enemy, have in a way been subverted. Who, who more and more identify the faith uh, uh, with um, of this worldly, broadly political and social project, and that, and yeah. and and, and, um, and so. Um, my hope was by writing this book that I could uh, I, I could illustrate the multiple ways in which this category of the religion of humanity really enlarges Christian self understanding. You know, Christian theologians tend to be preoccupied with heresies. You know, uh, uh, and by the way, I do think the religion of humanity is connected to some old heresies like Gnosticism and Marcionism and. And, and others, uh, uh, perhaps Arianism, but, uh, but when one sees that um, in important respects uh, major voices and elements uh, within the church have succumbed to a mode of thinking that is non- or even anti-Christian, then I think it opens up a mode of analysis that is extremely helpful for making sense of our present situation and it also makes the dire character of our situation i think much more evident
0: yes um i'm reminded of charles taylor's uh you know book the secular age in which he you know he talks extensively about the fact that we now live in what he calls the imminent frame right Uh, we have these buffered selves and that religion has to if, if religion Survives at all within this purely imminent frame, what, what, what I would call a sort of horizontalist frame with no verticality right. towards right. transcendence. That the religion has to adapt itself to that by, by in a sense still being religious, but staying within the confines of this purely imminentist frame, uh, and, and not and not challenging that frame in in, in any you know sort of measurable way that matters. And I and I was reminded of this your words just prompted me when i i was in rome in june on vacation with my wife and we just happened to be there at the same time that uh, the vatican was throwing this massive meeting it was called the 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 World Meeting of Human Fraternity, or something along those lines, and it was taking place in four or five locations around the world, but it was centered in the Vatican, and all the locations were linked up via video, and Pope Francis was going to show up, and the Via della Conciliazione, the main road that runs from St. Peter's, was lined with all kinds of tents and outhouses, and in other words, the Vatican was clearly expecting this massive, massive crowd of people to show up for this world meeting of human fraternity and the day of the event it was a saturday june 10th i believe or something 13th or something i don't know and literally i think collectively during the course of the eight hours of this event i think about a hundred people showed up It, it was embarrassing
1: well by the way the more i mean the church of england really shows the way that uh uh, if if uh, if a ch- if the ch- a church, uh, I'll to, to cite Maritain's uh, arresting phrase from the Paysan de la Garonne, if the the church if the church is unable unable to engage in a self respecting dialogue with the modern world, which also I think necessarily entails a critique of the world, yeah, um, uh, it's going to kneel before the world. And uh, the church becomes much less itself. It becomes much less attractive. Um, you know, in the early years of of uh, Pope Francis's pontificate, he would occasionally uh, he would occasionally point out the danger. Maybe it was a warning to himself, but he would point out the danger of the church simply becoming a left wing activist NGO. Yes. And uh, well, as uh, Father Raymond de Souza pointed out recently in a column about the blessing of the pope not being able to go to the climate change ca- uh, conference yeah. in, the, uh, in Dubai. So there were two there were there were two blessings. One uh, the pope was spared appearing, you might say, in all his nakedness as the head of a <laughs> activist NGO. And he was also spared having a meeting with the grand uh, imam of Abu Dhabi, who has recently been issuing screed after screed, denouncing the Zionist entity and the Jewish people. That would, yeah. that would have been a terrible embarrassment. But yeah, I, the, somehow I think the people around Pope Francis and the progressivist party, the uh, intellectual party, theological party within the Catholic Church, is under the grand illusion that if it goes this way, uh, if it kneels before the world, if it becomes a a, a subdivision of the, <laughs> of the progressivist project, it will somehow uh, draw uh, hundreds of millions of people to the faith. But everything suggests that the comprehensive uh, loss of self-confidence, the loss of vibrant orthodoxy, the la- la- loss of, uh, internal confidence leads to quite the opposite. Uh, I mean I know anecdotally I'm told that you know far fewer people attend um you know uh come to Rome to visit the Pope uh for his uh his, yeah. his you know than what was the right. case under his predecessors. And uh but I you know there's 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 something very odd that um um uh, I, 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 one point that preoccupied me in the book a little bit, or you might say a recurring theme, is the strange sympathy that so many people around Pope Francis have for regimes that persecute and murder our co religionists. You know, we had an yeah. Argentinian acolyte of Pope Francis tell us, the head of the pontifical. Academy of the Social Sciences that Catholic social thought is best instantiated in, the in kind China. Of, well, a, yeah. a country where the official church is outlawed, a church where the blood of martyrs flowed for 50 or 60 years or more, where the church is still under the gun, where, uh, 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 you know, the churches by law are uh, being forced to sinicize, which means to put uh, Maoist ideology above the truth of the gospel. I could go on and on and on. But a, but a society where there's uh, radical political centralization and enforced uh, ideology, and all that, what happened to subsidiarity? What happened to human liberty? What happened to human dignity? Uh, China, so-called communist, China doesn't even have a social uh, net for the poor. You know, and so uh, what What kind of thing, the, the near silence of this pontificate about uh, uh, the sufferings of the church in Nicaragua or Venezuela and the yeah. AV take, I'll tell you, it was really painful for me when I was writing this book is, um, I was reading very, very closely Pope Francis' speeches in Cuba and North America in 2015, and um, they were good moments, but the way the Pope treated Fidel Castro, the longest-lasting tyrant in the world at the time, as a friend, as a friend of the Church, as a friend of him personally, and uh, my little volume from our our, our Sunday Visitor Press had uh, the the conversation. We all we all wish the Pope would talk a little bit less at the back of planes, but. Uh, what <laughs> yes. there- Silvia Pergioli, you know, that voice from NPR, the yeah. president voice and uh, NPR reporter in Rome. And she said, Holy Father, you know, the church has been under amazing pressure uh, since 1959. Did you raise the question of the persecution of the church? And Pope Francis said, oh, no, no, no. We, t- we talked about ecology. Fidel cares a good deal about the environment. I gather... Pope Francis had given him some books encouraging uh, ecological consciousness and all that. Well, I mean, th- that, that that kind of encounter is not only terribly revealing, but it's also terribly depressing. That uh, uh, And one doesn't know, um, I would add, you know, for example, that the sort of Peronist model of political and economic development, which includes a large dose of demagoguery directed toward the poor, but also institutionalized corruption and centralization that has been extremely counterproductive. You know, Australia, Argentina had the same level of economic development in 1930, but the Pope does seem in many ways to be a prisoner of his own background, uh, more so than uh, many of his predecessors who were clearly marked. (laughs) you know, marked by, uh, and I think in very positive ways by their background, but, uh, we see, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves too much, but we see a certain abstraction from the place of Europe in Catholic self-understanding. Think of Paul, uh, beckoning to the call to go to Macedonia, you know, I think the church has always understood the encounter between, uh, the self-revelation of God in Christ and, you know, let's say Paul's missionary work in Europe is not accidental or contingent. Europe, if Europe goes, it's very hard to see how the intellectual and spiritual integrity of the church goes. This this Pope has no real interest in in European things. And um, and the people around him who do seem to be activists and liberationists, they don't know America at all. They hate America.
0: <clears throat> That's very clear. And that leads me uh, to, a, to a question when you're talking about, uh, you know, the, the Vatican's current posture towards China, uh, the Pope's rather irenic sort of words about Fidel Castro and so on. What do you think is the origin of that? So I certainly don't think that Pope Francis is a closet Maoist, who hopes that all governments around the world will emulate a Maoist or a Castroist kind of governmental repression of things? At least I would hope that that's not what he thinks. Uh, and, and because I don't think that he's a Maoist of, of that sort, what accounts for him and his and his administration being so sympathetic with those kinds those kinds of regimes? Is is it an anti an anti-Americanism, perhaps, so that, you know, he he favors China and Cuba and places like that, simply because they're a pain in the rear to the United States?
1: I think that's an element of it. Uh, In a a piece I wrote recently, I talked about uh, why would a man as intelligent as Noam Chomsky, and who clearly isn't a Marxist, more of an anarchist Why did Noam Chomsky go out of his way, let's say, to deny that there was genocide in Cambodia in the 70s under Pol Pot? Why did he write an introduction to a book by uh, a man in Paris, in France, who was a Holocaust revisionist? I think it had to do with the fact Chomsky just couldn't acknowledge that there might be instantiations of political evil and repression that were worse than the imperfections of democratic capitalism in the West. I think there's a lot of that. Yeah. I think uh, um, I think uh, so many of the people around the Pope are Latin Americans who, uh, I mean, there are many different kinds of Latin Americans and not all of them share the ideological obsessions of the uh, Barholio party, but uh, I do think a deep and abiding distrust of America and a tendency to distort the promise of America, you know, the empirical record of America as a civilization. I think it's a real problem for these guys. I do think they're a little soft on communism. I, I think people make a mistake. Pope Francis is not a Marxist. Um, uh, I don't think he wants the whole of Latin America to be ruled by some, uh, you know, cruel and gray, Castro White style despotism. But I think there's this something that progressivists have always summed to that somehow something like good intentions underlie these kinds of. Regime. Yeah. And, um, and you know, that, uh, uh, you know, my students have been annoying me with uh, this locution for 50 years. You know, communism is good in uh, theory, but bad in practice. I, I, uh, uh, I, I fail to see how it's good in theory, you know, the abolition of private property, family, religion, the nation. These are hardly goals that uh, can be achieved short of totalitarianism and certainly do nothing to enhance liberty and human dignity. But um, there's there's just this, um, uh, you know, the old phrase, enemy gauche, no enemies to the left.
0: Yes, I was there's just going to say that.
1: Yeah, there's an awful lot of that going on in the, uh, in this pontificate and the broader, you might say, theological and religious progressivism that informs it. You know, Cage, this pope is, uh, is so full of contradictions, and frankly, I'm tired of them because, you know, <laughs> about, every, about every three or four months he says something wise and true and then utterly contradicts it within an hour or two. I was in Hungary in April of this year at a fellowship at the Danube Institute, and I was there when the papal visit to Budapest. The Pope said some very wise and pungent things about uh, the LGBTQ++ movement as a form of uh, reckless ideological colonization. And the next week in Rome, he's... uh, Telling James Martin to do what he does and writing Sister
0: Grammick to do what she's doing.
1: I mean, you can't have it both ways. That's literally Yeah,
0: and, 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 and then he also came out and said, well, of course, you know, we, we can bless homosexual couples if they present themselves. To 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 the priest for for a blessing. After all, I mean we we bless boats and cars and dogs. We can certainly bless any human being that comes to us for a blessing, so long as we understand that what's not being blessed is is the union and confuse that with marriage. And yet, who is that kidding? Everybody and their blind pet hamster knows how that's going to get spun. That's going to get spun, and it has already been spun in the popular press amongst priests who are already blessing same-sex unions, is saying the, the Pope has now green-lighted us to, to bless same-sex unions. Uh, and and the, the Vatican hasn't clarified. I mean, they just said, well, you know, as long as you don't confuse it with a marriage, you're good.
1: Now, and of course, with Archbishop Fernandez at the head of the DDF, he seems to specialize in sowing confusion. Uh This idea that he is his principal responsibility seems to be to clarify the personal magisterium of Pope Francis, as opposed to the sempaternal magisterium of the Roman Catholic Church. Yeah. Uh, uh, By by the way, I mean, uh, you know, I love the way the fevered defenders of left wing ultramontanism or whatever you want to call it, or the Franciscan cult of personality operate. If you remain faithful to the unchanging teaching of the church, you're uh, not a good Catholic because you're not following the Pope. But the Pope himself seems to be guided uh, by a very Protestant principle of self-will. You know, whatever his private judgment is, the Catholic faith. Well, I'll tell you, if that's what Catholicism is, every critic of papal authority was right. Yeah, you know, think of Newman's great defense of conscience in the middle of the letter to the uh to the Duke of Norfolk. It's precisely the conscience is the great antidote to self will. And the papacy exists uh not to exercise its own will, but but to safeguard um conscience as um the hallmark of uh of of, of right. Uh, right reason, the natural law, and the judgment of God. So there's so much. I mean, Cardinal Mueller has made this point repeatedly, and with some frustration, no doubt. There's so little authentic, reasonable, disciplined, theological, and philosophical reflection coming from Rome today. It's um, they're amateurs and they're amateurs who soak confusion on every plane. You know, I made a little bit in the in the in the preface I wrote uh, to the paperback edition of The Idol of Our Age. I I, I talked a bit about those interviews with Scalfari, uh, where uh, nine of them, I believe, if you read them you know, the the Vatican keeps on saying, well, he didn't have a tape recorder. Well, but they never deny that anything. The Pope Pope says outrageously heretical things in those interviews. And again, I don't want to pay too much attention to that kind of thing, but why is the Holy Roman Pontiff um, opening his mouth in ways that undermine the confidence that ordinary Catholics can have in the you know the settled character
0: yeah i often say um you know i, I i'm not going to go out and say hey the pope's a heretic i'm not going to say that because just about everything that he has said off the cuff in airplane air interviews or with aging a- atheists without a recorder can be spun back into an orthodox direction with enough 10w40 oil greasing the gears <laughs> you know, back into place. All the Pope's planers out there doing their rubber man contortions saying, well, this is what the Pope really meant. This is what the, well, fine. But if you have to keep explaining and explaining. I've never known a Pope in my, I'm, I'm 65 years old. I've known several Popes now in my lifetime. I have never, ever encountered a Pope who needed more explainers all around him, especially, you know, in, in the social media than this Pope. And I often like to say the the central duty of the Petrine ministry, is to unify the church by clarifying matters that are in dispute. This pope does the opposite. He disunites, he divides precisely by muddying the waters, and then once he makes a mess, once he muddies the waters, he steps back and doesn't bother to clarify anything, and he just lets the chips fall where they may. That's a, like you said, I mean, this is almost a sort of in-your-face action or actions on the part of this pope to a certain sort of, you know, traditional conservative faction of the church, which he seems to really despise?
1: I mean, we've reached a point now. uh, Unprecedented exercises of authoritarianism against certain prelates who have spoken up about this confusion sometimes have done it in imprudent ways, but have certainly felt obliged by their own duty to safeguard uh, sacred truth. And to see the Pope's bitterness and anger at anyone who uh, uh, questions these challenges to orthodoxy and to uh, the moral laws, to see, you know, people being encouraged to resign, being dismissed and bad mouthed by yeah. the, Pope and the people around him. And then to see the German church in open, bold, yeah, uh, a militant opposition <laughs> to the Christian inheritance, trying to change teaching that if, if, we have to be frank with the German Church, if they have their way, Catholicism as we've known it will no longer exist. And yet the Pope's reaction to that frontal challenge has been really, I mean, I mean it's not too hard to see that his real objection to the Germans is they're moving too quickly.
0: They're moving too quickly and maybe even a certain jealousy too far ahead of him. Uh, that that he wants to be the one that has that that gets the credit down the road, probably long after he's gone, for having instituted the processes, synod and synodality, you know, that led to all of these changes. Hey, look, I, I for example, I am no fan at all of Bishop Strickland, the former, you know, the former bishop of Tyler, Texas. I think he was imprudent. Uh, you know, I, I think he was a bull in a china shop. I think he could have done things better and differently. All that being said, I don't think he should have been deposed from his diocese. And insofar as the fact that he was deposed, then that opens up the question of hypocrisy and a double standard. Because after all, what's worse? What is worse? The fact that the bishop of Tyler, Texas, this small insignificant diocese, the fact that that bishop said some imprudent things about, about the pope, rash, harsh things about the pope. What's worse, that or the fact that the cardinal that the pope put in charge of the synod on synodality openly dissents from the church's teaching on homosexuality and sexual morality in general. And, and cardinals like Cardinal McElroy of San Diego were made of voting members of the synod. And you've already mentioned James Martin. I mentioned Sister Gramic. And then, of course, there's uh, the, the, the entire German episcopacy should be deposed and the pope should move against them. So I think your, your criticism earlier, no enemies to the left of me, Is 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 playing out here, and I I, if you read the the recent critique of the German synodal way that came out of the Vatican, it does read like your move. What their concern is with the unity of the church, not with the fact that the Germans are saying theologically heretical things. Their concern is with the unity of the church. So the Pope wants these changes, but he wants them without. Creating Anglican Communion type fractiousness. The, Pope, I think.
1: the Pope's letter to the four uh, women uh, church members and theologians was, if I may say so, pathetic. It was far too brief, and it it dealt it it never addressed, as you just suggested, the essential matter of the content yeah. of the German Church's action, and and in that sense, it too causes scandal because it makes transparent. That uh, uh, that the, the 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 church the the pope is much closer to those who engage in a frontal assault on church doctrine and praxis than is to the faithful who understand that everything that Catholics have held near and dear for millennia is under assault. I must say, I find um, one of the most uh, troubling features of this pontificate to be the reckless appeal to the holy
0: spirit Yes, uh, uh it's like joachim fiori it, it is
1: it is we gotta remember not only eric vogel and the political philosopher who wrote about joachim Fiore and my the, and uh, the connection between Gnosticism and modern ideology, but the great Henri de Lubac wrote three-volume work. Yes, *L'Évangile* and looking at it, the permutations of that approach to Hegel and others, but the idea that the age of the spirit surpasses the self-revelation of God through Jesus Christ—that it surpasses. The unchanging natural moral law as revealed, let's say, in the Decalogue or the law written on the heart of men that St. Paul talks about, that there could be innovations where everything that was understood to be false is now true and everything that was understood to be wrong is now right. Um, that kind of historicism has nothing to do, or the historicization of Christianity has nothing to do with the charisms of the spirit. There is a gross theological misunderstanding that will have even grosser practical effects on moral self-understanding on the life of the church. And I would add to all that. Uh, one thing I, I, I'm sure you noticed in my book was I, uh I I repeatedly stress that um, this humanitarian or progressivist strain within Catholicism separates three things that always need to be kept together. And that is um, repentance, justice, and God's mercy. And so an indiscriminate appeal to mercy without any concomitant call to repentance, to metanoia, to the conversion of souls, um, I think just denudes the gospel of its authentic character. Where Whatever we're left with is much closer to a feckless secular non-judgmentalism.
0: Yeah, that- I, I, yeah, I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis in the problem of pain, where he talks about the reduction of the good to merely to, to kindness. And that, that seems like, oh, that's such a wonderful thing. But kindness divorced from some robust notion of the moral good can actually become a kind of a horrible demonic despotism, a kind of falsification of the good i i i would tell
1: my students
0: if hitler had uh, had not committed um
1: suicide in the bunker with his, you know his new wife and the nazi fanatics 30 years later 40 years later if he was still in prison in berlin there would be a group of humanitarians and activists saying he's not being treated well you know look at <laughs> You know, this yeah. kind of thing uh, i don't know if you remember what saddam was saying yeah. uh was found in the rat hole in iraq and in, independently of the wisdom of our intervention in iraq but yeah this man was a pretty awful man and uh, and uh um the secretary of state in the vatican was commenting on oh the indignity of the photographs or his uh you know, he had lice in his hair and, you know, and, 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 and you know, c- compassion can be very free floating and it can have any object and it can lead to a kind of softening of moral judgment. That's not to say that things like pity and compassion do not have some genuine and important relationship to the moral life. It is to say, however, that they do, do not exhaust the moral life. And there's the, there's the hard virtues, and the hard virtues are not just about um, taking the easy road, but they're, they involve um, a willingness to make firm distinctions, to point the sword inward. You know, that's the yeah. part of Christianity that no yeah. one wants to hear that the church yeah. welcomes everyone. Tutti,
0: uh, Tutti,
1: Tutti, but not everyone in their unrepentant state of this sort of therapeutic mentality where we're just, we're, we're okay, we're just fine as we are.
0: Yeah, and- I mean, I, I, th- I thought this way after Cardinal McElroy's now famous essay in America magazine, where he said, we need to be a more inclusive church that includes everyone, everyone to the Eucharistic table. And I remember thinking, I wonder if that includes skinheads and neo-Nazis and KKK members and racists and people who, who, you know, lynch mobs uh, of all these homophobes. Uh, you know, I, I wonder if he wants to include rapists, murderers. Well, what's he talking about? There? Obviously, know, they're, they're,
1: they're inclusive until they're not. They're right. incapable. People like and the are and the Archbishop of Chicago and Tobin and these people, they totally buy into... The ideological agenda of activists who specialize in canceling excluding excoriating they're very certain who racists are they're very certain yeah. who who the evildoers are and so we have to understand that the language of exclusion i learned this from my friend alan bassinson who said you know with these with these various heretical emphases and ideological movements they specialize in using homonyms that don't mean the same as the ordinary meaning of word.
0: Right. They subvert the meaning of the yeah. traditional meaning of the word yeah. and, well, uh,
1: we, You know, inclusion would be a good secular example.
0: And speaking of Ellen B- Bessonson, here is yeah. his uh, book, uh, The Falsification of the Good, uh, which I just finished reading. After I read your book, I read this book. Uh, got it. It's really, really wonderful. It's a meditation in a lot of ways on, on Soloviev and uh, Orwell, uh, and and insights into the, into that whole concept and
1: and and uh, and, and precisely, I think uh, Beson's great strength. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. And and as you know, I dedicated the book to Be- Besson. Yes, you so did. My my treatment of Soloviev is much indebted to him. I would. Um, so, so, so wonderful because this idea of the falsification of the good, that, uh, the good is very, very vulnerable to, uh, appropriation by those who want to mutilate it and distort it beyond recognition. And I yes. think the great lesson of Soleviev's, uh, short tale of the Antichrist is that, uh you know, as 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 Celeb says, "Not all that glitters is gold." You know that there can be the false allure of a of a good that's been transformed into its opposite. And yeah, and uh, you know, it is it is one one doesn't want to become a fanatic uh, and let's say you know looking for the Antichrist everywhere. And I I tend to belong to those to uh, to the party that says. Um, there isn't a single antichrist, but the, but antichrist is a spiritual temptation for everyone. And there may be some historic figures who better embody the antichrist. I think of the epistles of John and scripture where the antichrist is referred to plurally, you know, but th- yeah. that, that said, um, the antichrist in Suleviev, Suleviev sort of, really stays very close to the book of Revelation and draws on its symbolism and giving this, his account of the times. But where he was, I think, daring and truthful was in showing the very real possibility that this falsification of the good, this appropriation, transformation, mutilation of the key concepts of Christianity could infect uh, uh, the, 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 in, the insides of all, of all the churches and that those who would remain faithful to the genuine gospel might turn out to be a small minority and that though <clears throat> promising some kind of radical, worldly transformation as a substitute for the gospel. Would for a time be seen as, you know, in- innovators uh, doing exciting things, you know, leading the world toward world peace and uh, yeah, yeah, and and, uh, and I love uh, I love the fact that in Sulevi of Short Tail, the and the the Antichrist has a uh, uh, is a theologian who has a degree from Tubingen, you know. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I love that too. Uh, this is fantastic. You know, along these lines, I, w- I want to quote, uh, you also uh, qu- quote the uh, Hungarian philosopher R.L. Uh, Kolnai, uh, and uh, on the bottom of page 67 into 68, there's a quote I want to give here along along the lines of what you were talking about. Sure. As, you, as the Hungarian-born moral and political philosopher Kolnai. Noted in his remarkably penetrating impression, nineteen forty-four article, "The Humanitarian versus the Religious Attitude," which is appended at the end of your book, by the way, humanitarianism is quote the standard type of non-religious philosophy end quote that has arisen quote on a soil tilled by Christianity end quote. Christianity is universalistic, personalistic, and moralistic, and thus readily readily gives rise to a humanitarian distortion of itself. Those who lose confidence in the promises of God or repudiate the supernatural dimensions of their faith fall back on a humanitarian ethos where man as such is the measure of everything. They tend to reduce Christianity to a concern for social welfare and the alleviation of poverty and suffering. Humanitarianism eventually is seen as that part of Christianity that is truly essential and worthy of respect. This view is held not only by secular humanitarians, but by many liberal or demi-Christians who identify Christianity exclusively with a project of this worldly amelioration." I thought that was a great quote uh, in the book because it, it actually highlights the S- Sloviev's point, you know, about the Antichrist and the, and the, and the sort of falsification of the good. What Kolonai is saying is that humanitarianism is a kind of falsification, of the Christian universalist personalist impulse and therefore it easily subverts christianity
1: i think that's right i think there are a series of doctrines that are or or movements that they have a they they come very close to the christian spirit but in a in a in a spirit of falsification so and that's, that, that, that's uh, quite alluring for Christians. You know, they see a Christian mark in movements that whose goal is, in a sense, the extirpation of the gospel and its replacement by a comprehensive falsification of the good. So Soleviev is so good in highlighting that, you know... Uh, uh, the Antichrist writes a book on an open you know, path to welfare and world peace and all of yeah. this. Who, who could be against that? But when you see that the globalism that is proffered by the Antichrist is not uh, a renewed understanding of human brotherhood, but in fact, uh, a kind of secularized socialism or pantheism that eliminates the transcendental dimensions of life altogether Oh well,
0: yeah i mean look how the parable of the good samaritan is often you know misused in this regard you know as well whereas uh the there's a specifically christian weight of that parable where the where you're, you're 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 asked to in a sense this is a way of saying it the imitatio christi to follow christ means to to give aid and comfort uh to the stranger that then simply becomes this, well, what Jesus is talking about there is clearly nothing more than the need to get beyond our ethnicity and to reach out in this broad humanitarian way to the broader world. I I see that all the time with that particular, particular I uh, I think Pope Francis misuses it in Fratelli Tutti. He does.
1: You know, uh, uh, Pope Benedict used to say that uh, Christians don't need a political program. We have the Sermon on the Mount. I mean excuse me the parable of the good samaritan but he understood the parable of the good samaritan in a christocentric way pope francis doesn't i think his reading of that parable in fratellituti is impoverished and strained and a bit embarrassing uh for a couple of reasons one um he, he uses it to sort of bash, you know, uncaring priests and uncaring bourgeois and all that. Finally, he doesn't pay attention to the fact that under the Jewish law, the, uh, the priests, the Levites, who were not heartless men, were not supposed to touch, you know, uh, uh, they, these people are half dead and uh, there's the laws of purity and all that. So to, to present them as merely heartless, I think, is to miss... Something very important about the context. Secondly, um, I I I think you know some of the church fathers, quite a few of them, saw the Good Samaritan himself as uh, as as Christ, because uh, yes, he acts authoritatively. He uh, he goes away. He says he, he 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 acts decisively. He provides resources for the care of the person he says he will be back and obviously his promise of coming back uh is is taken with real seriousness by <clears throat> the person who now has the care for the uh for the wounded man and in other words it, Jesus Christ is truly authoritative in the command of love, but I think the Christocentric readings in their various forms, including those of the for Church Fathers, remind us, and something that Pope Francis failed to do in Fratelli Tutti, we're not really capable of doing this all by ourselves. Right. Um, our self love, our self preoccupation, um, will get in the way of the elementary command to love our neighbor as ourselves and so the presence of Christ the presence of God's grace gives you know all too imperfect human beings the strength to uh to to do what is necessary so it is not i mean the pope gives i think a pretty straightforward humanitarian reading of the parable Um, and I think that's a mistake. You may remember at the beginning of my book, I dwell on the temptations of Christ in the desert. Right. The help of Pope Benedict the Sixteenth's reading and Volume One of Jesus of Nazareth, and I do that because I think those passages in 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 uh, Mark and Matthew. It's Mark and Matthew, right?
0: Yeah. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, uh, I think they make very clear that the authors of Scripture, and the inspired authors of Scripture, were very self-conscious about that. Yeah, Mark's
0: book. account is very short, by the way, and you get the, the longer it's the real.
1: Account. It's the real short one. And then you yeah, get Yeah,
0: and the, Matthew is very, the longer version. Yeah. The
1: longer version, yeah. That gives us more to work with, so to speak, yeah, right? Yeah,
0: so go ahead, but, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. But but that said, um, I think the authors of Scripture were aware of the temptation to turn Jesus into a social worker or a miracle worker, or to turn religion into an instrument for this worldly amelioration and transformation. And um, especially in the account of Matthew, this is developed in such a way that one sees this as a central temptation for every Christian and corporately for the church itself, and it is in that context of Jesus of Nazareth that Pope Benedict um, brings in Soleviev and uh, and says, uh, uh, you know, uh, Soleviev highlights perfectly the form that kind of temptation might take. Uh, so uh, certainly Pope Benedict was very sensitive in myriad writings of his that. Humanity. Oh, it's a beautiful book great book I'm yeah. uh, I'm uh, I I'm startled every time I return to it by the insight and learning and spiritual wisdom
0: uh yeah oh. and I, I reread I reread this volume uh, after reading your book because I thought <laughs> man I completely forgot how profound Ratzinger's reading of the temptation narrative, Really is. And so I, I've just been meditating on it here and advent rereading it over and over.
1: Yeah, it struck me when I first uh was reading the book, uh, and I had already had an independent engagement and admiration for Soleyev, who had <clears throat> helped my thinking on these matters along with Kolny and others, and uh but to see that John Paul, that uh, Pope Benedict XVI had the same essential I- insights, you and you may have noticed. I, I said it in passing, but in 2000, you know, for the for the Easter sermons uh, in 20 was it 2022, Francis had Rupnik. Uh, in 2007, Paul, uh, uh, Pope Benedict had Archbishop Beefy, uh who. Uh, gave a series of talks on Seleviev and the falsification of the good. So Pope Benedict's pontificate was a pontificate that was very alert to, very self-conscious about the danger of conflating Christian truth with a humanitarian substitute. And I think we can say at a minimum, Uh, And I don't I don't say this with any acrimony, but uh, there's no one in Francis's inner circle who would even recognize that as a problem. It's just not
0: that's uh, that's the issue here. I mean, in in a lot of my recent writings, this is what I've been pointing out. People say, what's your issue with this pope? What's your issue with this pope? Uh, You know, he's not a heretic. Well, to me, the, the issue of heresy is in some ways, some ways a red herring because my my fundamental issue with him is that he himself, and then those with whom he has surrounded himself, simply do not understand the nature of the crisis that we face. They do not have a proper reading of the signs of the times. They are completely clueless and oblivious, it seems to me, to the genuine the, 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 the genuine threat of the toxicity of our culture to the faith these days and the real threat of Christianity being subverted from within in precisely this this kind of falsification of the good, which is why I found your book so dadgum fascinating, uh, because it yes, that's it's just yes. My, so forget heresy. OK, if he's a heretic, fine. We'll talk about that. He's clueless. The man is clueless as to what's going on. He has surrounded himself with clueless people. That's my number
1: one. I I often talk to Catholic friends, some of whom are theologians, and they're sort of hung up on heresies. Well, they know something's wrong with this pontificate. They want to know which heresies are at stake. I do think there's some heresies at stake. Well, yeah, okay. And, and, And one of them, I think, is Marcionism, the temptation to turn out the Turn away the toughness, you might say, the nitty gritty of the Old Testament and to successfully yeah. spiritualize the new. Uh, but that said, I think the real problem is they don't have a clue, as you put it so well. And that means they are sleepwalking, some of them a little more consciously, but most of them are sleepwalking into another religion, the religion of humanity, which is far worse than adhering to a heresy. Without knowing it. Uh, And many of them lack um, the theological and philosophical education that would alert them to their own mistakes. But mainly, as you point out, they just don't, they can't see what's before them. You know, in uh, my book, I quote Alexander Solzhenitsyn about the courage to see. You need courage and you need faith to see, you know, the obstacles before us, the challenges to the integrity of the church, the moral life, the life of the soul, the political common good. I think they lack all of that. And, um, you know, and so when we, we are confronted by a neo-paganism that, um, Wants to, the late writer Scruton loved loved to call it the culture of repudiation, but the spirit of negation. Scruton used to quote uh, Goethe, Mephistopheles, the spirit that forever negates. So imagine a a whirlwind with secular manifestations, religious manifestations, that simply wants to repudiate our entire inheritance. Uh, and, and show such naivete about the enduring drama of good and evil in the human soul. And they somehow think if Catholics abandon their age-old self-understanding, a true Christian anthropology, they abandon the unchanging moral law, that we're simply going to end up in a very happy place. It's it's uh, much worse than any single single heresy or combination of heresies it's a blindness to reality
0: a, a deep and I think that's actually being charitable to say that they're simply blind and a deep blindness to reality and I think that's most of it I think like you said they're just kind of sleepwalking into this because they just don't seem to have the intellectual acumen or the spiritual eyes with which to see the nature of the Christ before them. Others I think are I, I think are more calculating. Are people who actually lack faith and know that they lack faith and for whatever reason remain within the church and desire to change it in in very very specific directions
1: i i i i have come to the conclusion that we should in no way underestimate the number of people in the higher echelons of the church who are nothing at best bureaucratic time servers at worst, non-believers. Look, we look, think of the sexual abuse crisis. Uh, people who could do what they did, old men, like McCarrick, let's say, right. who obviously do not fear the judgment of a righteous God. They do not fear. Uh, they uh, right. Why they stayed in the church, why they're so committed to subverting the church from within, is uh, remains something of a mystery, but um, uh, yeah, it's um, uh, you know, well, when the Son of Man returns, you know, how will much they faith find faith? will they find faith? And that, can, and, and I think what's so disconcerting for faithful Catholics is um, the growing recognition that there is far less faith in the you know, yes. You know within the deep core of the church i just read last night a catholic world report this uh sermon that cardinal burke gave in wisconsin i read
0: the same thing yeah
1: i i was moved by it i'll tell you why i was moved by it. cardinal burke could have been much more polemical uh aristotle reminds us that anger in the right manner at the right time for the right reason can be in accord with virtue but he chose in a much more reflective and meditative way to talk about the invasion of the church by apostasy. And he did it uh, in a gentle way, a firm way, but he um there was a spirit of sadness, I think, that this has come to pass.
0: And he's putting his finger on on something that you know that I'm hinting at here, and you're hinting at, which is. Yeah, there are, there might be specific heresies in play, Martianism, a few other things. All right, I I think maybe of the Abu Dhabi statement that the Pope signed, you know, saying God wills the, this pluralism of religions. Some other things we can debate. Deep
1: down, all religions are saying the same thing. Yeah,
0: yeah, but but underneath it all, underneath it all, a far deeper crisis is at hand, and the deeper crisis is a more profound and generalized apostasy. Among yes. many in the hierarchy, it's yes. not a specific heresy here and there. It's a thoroughgoing, a thoroughgoing repudiation of the very foundations of the Christian faith, and and I think that to the extent that a falsification of the good has has played a role in here, I think it answers somewhat the question as to why they stay. Because even after the good is falsified, and and in their mind they've moved on to something else. There remains a certain a certain hauntedness that they have, and so they curl back upon the good from which they came. They curl back upon it in a kind of rage that they seek to negate in order to justify where they are now. That that seems to me to be the dynamic that's in play here.
1: And by the way, uh, I think we're we need to adequately describe this dynamic and what's unfolding, and the and the layers of apostasy within the church itself um we, we we need to use words like repudiation and negation these are active projects this is just not somebody saying I don't uh, you know I have my doubts about some old truce this is a yeah, yeah.
0: this' is
1: an active project to destroy and I think some of the acrimony and active hatred of faithful Catholics comes from, that that uh, the 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 character of negation or repudiation, that the resistance to uh, the fundamental revolutionary transformation of the church is not seen as you know some kind of admirable desire to preserve the insights of the faith. It's seen as this immoral obstacle to a new church and a new world. And uh, yeah. And now these people can be very mean. I mean, let's be frank. In the American church, we have had uh, some art, we have had bishops and archbishops who have been thoughtful, energetic voices for creative orthodoxy. And every one of those men has been uh, belittled or ignored or scorned by the Holy Father the fact that only people who are dedicated to a kind of sociological and activist view of the church have any chance of being made a cardinal in north america it's it's uh, it says everything you need to say about the multiple levels of intellectual and spiritual corruption nighty night Tubin and uh, yeah, yeah. Miguel so, bitch. so, so bitch. These are men of low learning. Of uh, uh, they're they're men who uh, uh, never would have would have gotten a episcopal appointment if the church was in a in a better state than it yeah, is. Yeah,
0: and 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 also they're not just intellectually shallow. You you you, you I'm going to be careful on what I say here, but Cardinal Supich, for example, in Chicago, I know from having knowledge of people from Chicago.
1: Cardinal Supich
0: yeah. is just a flat out thug. He is a thug of the first order who who will not tolerate anyone who disagrees with him. That's people right. people live in fear in that diocese of Cardinal Supich because they know they know that he is a thug of, of the first order, as I said. And and so it, it's more than just intellectual shallowness. There is a real mean spiritedness. Uh, to this that has to be taken into account. yeah
1: this this brings us back to our earlier discussion about the Orwellian character of inclusion as understood by these church reformers. They don't believe in inclusion at all. They want to exclude the truly orthodox and faithful from the church. And if anyone gets in their way, (sighs) they will be autocratic, authoritarian, even totalitarian in ways that weren't imaginable under previous pontificates. And um yeah, I uh, um and and I have to say, you know, I went to a, a Roman I went to Holy Cross, College of the Holy Cross as an undergraduate, Worcester, Massachusetts. And uh, the Jesuits there were very, very bad. I mean, Father Manning who later 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 became the Father General of the New England Order. He was an out and out liberationist who was singing the praises of Cuban China. Uh, Father Casey, who edited the Holy Cross Quarterly, put out a special edition in 1977 saying Mao Zedong and Zhou Enlai should be canonized for all the work they had done for the poor. This is about an hour before Deng Xiaoping comes out and says 50 million people died during the yeah, Great Leap Forward. in the Great
0: Leap Forward in the early 60s, I believe. Yeah, uh,
1: yeah. 50
0: million people.
1: Yeah, this ideologically crazed effort. To transform human nature, abolish private property, and all of this, and and uh, and and the peasants starve. Some some commitment to uh, the poor, but you know, heard nothing like madness. And I, I remember going to Holy Cross in the fall of 1978, and I would hear from student and professor and Jesuit alike this argument that everything had been wrong in the church until 1967. The summer of sixty-seven or sixty-six, but now there was a new dawn. Yeah, and uh, and I thought, my God, if the church had been fundamentally wrong for nineteen for nineteen hundred and sixty-six years, it ought to be rejected and repudiated. But this was the um, the the sweeping way in which this new Vulgate just sort of threw away all the wisdom of the past. And um, and I also saw the the deep contempt that uh, uh, the progressive theologians, the Jesuits, and others had for John Paul II.
0: Oh my goodness! Yes, Um, I try I try to tell people this all the time. Since you know we we both lived through it, and JP two was one of my ecclesiastical heroes especially I was in seminary when he was elected and a great hero of mine. It just never ceased to amaze me the depth and the extent to which the liberal faction of the church loathed and despised John Paul with every fiber of their being and sought at every measure, to undermine him, which is why now it really galls me to see publications like the National Catholic Reporter, which routinely, routinely, week after week after week, gave a platform to people like Hans Kuhn and Richard McBrien and they did nothing but trash John Paul II week in and week out. And now they have the gall, the gall to say, if you oppose Pope Francis, you're not a very good Catholic, because after all, he is the Pope. Uh, the chutzpah, do they think we don't have memories? Do, do the liberal Pope splainers now, who are coalesced around this papacy, think that people like you and I do not have memories for crying out loud?
1: I think they. I think they do. I think they take their bearings from the secular media, which is also takes for granted that people uh, can't remember the the very. It's like the you know the people on college campuses now who are discovering free speech after, you know, institutionalizing cancel culture for the last 15 years. Suddenly, you know, those who say you ought to uh, eliminate the Jewish people, well, that we they have to be protected because of free speech. I'm actually a free speech man because I don't see any re- return of them that have, you know, c- 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 various ideologues trying to silence people. But that said, um, yes, there's that same phenomenon of assuming that none of us have noticed anything that's unfolded in the human world over the last five or six <laughs> or ten years. It's stunning. Oh. And uh and it's stunning too because the new Ultramontanism has absolutely no theological foundation. It's not rooted in a the theological principle as the nature of papal authority or the leader. Right. It's rooted in a cult of personality. I mean, Fernandez could not be more open about the fact. That his principal responsibility is to defend and articulate uh, the personal magisterium of Pope uh, uh, Pope Francis. No Pope has a personal magisterium. They may have theological emphases. You know, John Paul II right. with the with theology of the right. body. Uh, uh, you know the the way. Uh, Pope Benedict enlarged the the, the understanding of logos, of so a kind of capacious reason as the... Yeah. These, these were great em, and important emphases, but they were never innovations. And uh, this papacy specializes in innovations. You know, the Pope always quoting that uh, medieval figure, uh, what's his name, the... Uh, Uh, as a Victor uh,
0: Vincent Vincent of Lorraine yeah yeah and he was not medieval he was earlier than the medieval era
1: earlier medieval but he's always quoting him to justify a a newfangled notion of the development of doctrine but the development of doctrine always has been understood conservatively the development is never the repudiation of established and acknowledged truth yeah, uh, it is the clarification of what we already know, uh, but that has now taken a, a form that is capable of a fuller uh, articulation. Of yeah, doctrine.
0: Vincent was very clear that doctrines can change, but they have to change in a way that doesn't distort or contradict what you know what what came before. And that's. And, right.
1: And so Newman, I think, in the development of doctrine is even clearer than that. And uh, no, so uh, this idea, if we really historicize the Catholic faith in such a way that the truth can be fundamentally different in one epoch than another, how are we different from Foucault and Derrida? Yeah. We, we, we—the light of eternity, the, of the permanent things, of unchanging truth—has been replaced by, you know, Foucault called it the epoque, epical truth.
0: Yeah, and it's like Pope Francis represents a kind of standalone magisterium that is the final Fukuyama moment, the end point. There's been a whole there's been a teleology to all the papacies up to this one. And the teleology is this pope who has now finally come along to let us know what the truth is. You know, uh, uh, the the writer, papal biographer, Austin Ivory, let the cat out of the bag. He said the silent part out loud about six years ago in an interview where he said, well, we finally have a pope who's kind of unmoored from tradition and scripture, and so finally we have a magisterium rooted in a person and not in these dead traditions and so on. That, and he had to backtrack, he was immediately called out on, well, you don't understand what I really meant, and oh yeah, we understood exactly what you meant, and the entire papacy has played out in that way.
1: Yeah, I know that's that's so very well said. He and 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 uh, Massimo and uh, Fagioli,
0: maximum beans. Fagioli. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I mean, Massimo Fagioli at at his post at Villanova would function the way a uh, apparatchik would in the Soviet
0: regime. And I've called him that. Yeah, if Archbishop Shapu would
1: say anything, that didn't seem to be on board with this transformational project. Uh, he would uh, Massimo would call Rome or, or you know, he, you know, the, the idea that you have you have the you have these journalist hack theologians spying on bishops yeah. to report yeah. them for insufficient fidelity to the personal uh political. Social theological project of one not terribly smart pope. It's uh, it's ludicrous, and uh, and the way you know the, the, these aforementioned men just they 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 take these rather tawdry facts and this lack of theological rootedness. Oh, I know. And they turn it into some golden intellectual well. Wealth.
0: And, and, and this played out in the Synod on Synodality. I was in Rome covering the Synod. I wrote for the National Catholic Register and Catholic World Report on, on you know, several articles on the Synod.
1: Lots, lots of good stuff.
0: And Anyway, I, thank you. Uh, and the thing that I, you know, from talking with people there uh, that came through loud and clear, the number one frustration of so many of the intelligent people that were there, was the complete superficiality of it all the complete lack of any deep theology of any kind the theological superficiality everything was sociobabble everything was psychobabble and even worse just anodyne buzzwords dragged out of dei offices and crap you know that is what the whole synod and synodality was about and it was larded with super progressive types who thought in these categories, all of the Vatican-appointed people, well, not all, 95% of the Vatican-appointed people were all in that progressive tra- tra- direction. Thank God for local Episcopal conferences sending other people to be voting members. Otherwise, the entire synod would have been populated by these kinds of people.
1: Well, you know, and and uh, the whole mode of conversation having people this this is you know stuff out of ed schools from the 1960s, people sitting at tables and being I able know. to talk for two to three minutes, and you know, it's like progressive educators who think that unfair, you know. I know particular purpose, they all have to gather in a little circle and have a collective response and all of this. I mean, it trivializes and dumbs down and
0: Uh, I'm accused by the Pope's plainers all the time of you, you were scarred by your experience of the 70s. And so you're you're just an old man who's projecting old ideas onto this papacy and so forth. And it just you know what? The Pope is old too, by the way, and he was influenced by the same things that we were. And and there, maybe with age comes a certain wisdom and perspective, right? That there's really nothing new under the sun. We've seen this all before. I remember I was in public school in the, in the early 1970s, and a new form of education was introduced. the The, the acronym was MACREL. McCrell. I don't know what that stood for, but what it meant was complete chaos in the classroom, complete open classrooms, and instead of sitting in desks, we sat. At round tables. (laughs) We sat at round tables and we was supposedly were supposed to be teaching each other, which pedagogically was superior to the chalk talk lecturing head teacher. No, the round table and its dialogue was magically going to create education. And that's the BS that was going on at the center. Same thing, same thing.
1: You know, Philip Reef in a famous book called uh, The Triumph of the Therapeutic, and uh, it's those of us who lived through it uh, saw just how pernicious and silly it was at the same time. By the way, the church did this in the 70s and 80s with the call to action, where the same ideologues and activists crowded out serious Catholic discussion. We see it in we have a church that talks about evangelization, but that converts nobody. I uh, uh, Proselytization yeah. is a bad word. Um, the Venezuelan archbishop, who was the head archbishop in Amazonia, began the misbegotten synod on the Amazon by saying he had never converted anyone. Well, I'll tell you, people yeah. are people are getting converted in amazon they're becoming um uh evangelical christians yeah they're
0: they're all becoming pentecostals
1: Becoming pentecostals Uh, leonardo boff's brother recently wrote an article in which he said we liberationists are partly responsible for the decatholicization of brazil all we did was talk about the revolution and social structures. We didn't ask anyone to, uh, to you know, that we yeah. require any kind of active Christian life. And he and he said, and these words are quite striking. And so he said, he says people become Pentecostalists, they become evangelicals, they even become Satanists, but any anything but this version of Catholicism. Yeah. uh, Because there's
0: nothing nothing supernatural about it, nothing transcendent. If you're going to reduce the church to a political organization, hey, guess what? There are better political organizations out there that know actually how to do politics and do it better. And you have the example, too, of the Portuguese cardinal or bishop. I don't know who it was, who was in charge of World Youth Day, who said, well, our goal is not to convert anyone. We, don't, yeah. we, want, we want the Muslim kids and everybody to come here and really feel good about themselves and not worry that we're going to try and convert anyone to Christ, uh, to which Bishop Barron, to his credit, came out and said, uh, actually, we do want to convert people to Christ.
1: Yeah, the, the war on the Great Commission, you know, the idea that somehow, look, I mean, it, 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 you no longer convert because you no longer have confidence in the truth. You no longer have confidence yes. that uh, the, the Christian, I think Peggy said it, Pascal said it, uh, Paul VI said it when he said the church had a specialty, you know, the truth about man. John Paul II liked to say it, but we have one gun th- going for us. We understand man. We understand the human soul. We understand the relationship of the human person the ends and purposes of human freedom to a higher destiny. We have all this to offer man. And instead, the people who run the citadel and Citadality, uh refer to the uh, overarching authority of sociology. Oh, yeah. So, a sociology and psychology knows more about, let's say, the nature of human sexuality and the relationship of men and yeah. women than the age-old wisdom of the truth.
0: Just like they took the Pontifical Institute for Studies on Marriage and the Family in Rome and renamed it Pontifical Institute for Studies on Marriage and Family Sciences. They they wanted it to be more sociological rather than theological. And they gutted every professor that was there that was of a more traditional mind and replaced them with professors that think exactly like the kind of people we're criticizing here today.
1: In my book, I call that a, a Stalinist purge. Yeah, it had all the cruelty, the ideological heavy-handedness, the uh, stupidity, the roughness of the kind of purges that occurred behind the Iron Curtain. And by the way, it shows the lack of charity and respect that the present Pontiff has for his great predecessors that a uh, pontifical academy dedicated to you might say the deepest insights of john paul ii as and, and are as i uh, articulated in veritatis splendor and other great encyclicals and in his theology of the body and just replace that with hack sociology and with yeah, of the worst know, kind the worst kind and you know uh they they really do seem to think uh, there's a word people don't use anymore, but I like to use antinomia. You know, we just oh, yeah. throw, we just throw out the law, we throw out structures. You know, everything is freedom. Everything is being yourself. You know, why if the Roman Catholic Church bows before the altar of autonomy? I would say again, I'm not I, I, I would say that would be a capitulation to the spirit of the world and the then the, and the and we know from Scripture that the, the world is ruled by powers and principalities that are not in accord with uh, the order of salvation. So why the church thinks it has a duty to undermine, you might say, there's a there's a lack of faith and not just faith in doctrine, but lack of fidelity yeah. to what the church knows, what you can offer, offer people, uh, the elevation, the order of grace. All of that gets thrown by the by uh, and really before what, you know, reckless activist ideologies and social science approaches that are yeah. not really worthy of intellectual respect.
0: Well, um, you know, yeah, if there's a real uh, crisis in, of faith and grace, I think, almost in a Lutheran sense of affirming that, yeah, we're we, we're just stuck in our sins. There's grace that covers over us, but we're just stuck in our sins. But anyway, you know, I, we should probably end this. We've been going for about an hour and 25 minutes. Uh, I, if, I'll put you on the spot. Here. I'd love to have you back on uh, to, to talk some more about some of the other themes in, in your book, if you don't mind. Uh, to have sort of a part two of, of, of this. I would.
1: Interview. Can I just add that uh, one of the things that came to me as I was writing my book was how many important figures in the 19th and 20th century had been prescient about the yes. concept of this humanitarianism? We mentioned Soleviev, and much later, of course, John Paul II, but um, one reason I included uh, a chapter about and an, and an article by the Catholic phenomenologist and moral philosopher Earl Colney is in 1944, he laid it all out in a beautiful essay called yeah. The Religious Versus the Humanitarian Attitude. And uh, and so there were people who saw that this self-subversion, you know, this this. Oh, yeah. Christians to give in. To I'd the... li-
0: yeah, and I'd like to talk more about that article uh, the next yeah. time I have you on. A uh, 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 Romano Guardini wrote a, a lot about these kinds of things as well. Um, you know, I mean, it's
1: funny. he's a he's a theologian. The Pope quotes, but he never seems to get to the no. deep core of it. He doesn't
0: seem to understand Guardini's point at all. No, and yet he, he studied Guardini and doesn't seem to have understood Guardini. Either that or late in life, he decided to repudiate Guardini. I don't know. But anyway, we really do have to sort of uh, wrap this up. I don't like these things to go much longer than an hour and a half or so. Uh, so I, I do thank you. This has been a fascinating conversation. Uh, it went down pathways I kind of wasn't expecting. Uh, we talked a lot about the contemporary church situation, which I think was great. It's kind of what I wanted to get to eventually. But that does mean, though, there's, there's a lot more uh you know you talk about jürgen habermas in your book and others and, and you know and i'd like to unpack that it, in
1: it's a, intellectually wide ranging because you might say the humanitarian religion has many uh it it has many subdivisions and many sources yeah it does and all, but all of them are interesting and prominent and influential. And I'm afraid in, in the circles that matter in the secular and church world, more influential today than the kind of solid orthodoxy, the kind of mere Christianity that uh, C.S. Lewis spoke so well about.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, we could talk about him, too. I love Lewis. I've used him for...
1: Lewis, uh, Remy Bragg, who's a good friend of mine, said at a conference a couple of years ago, we were both attending, he said, I have read and admired and learned from everything by C.S. Lewis, and that includes the children books. <laughs> 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 uh, but but it is, it is... uh, And you go back and read essays from the 40s, not only, of course, the prophetic yeah. expression and wonderful abolition of man. abolition of man, but the poison of subjectivism, his his great essay on ethics. You know, he saw things uh, with a lucidity and a penetration that is. Pretty yes, he did. Wild. And um, uh, he's certainly a great influence on my own intellectual and religious reflection.
0: Mine too. Boy, he was really instrumental in my intellectual growth as a as a young man. Um, But maybe in the next installment, we can talk about him some more as well. That's Uh, right. uh, Okay. So I want to thank, I want to thank especially uh, Dr. Mahoney for coming on today. And uh, really, this is just fantastic. I I thought that uh, it was such, it was a really profound uh, conversation in a lot of ways. So thanks everybody for listening. And uh, we'll, uh, we'll maybe, see everybody again uh, next time on part two with, with Dr. Mahoney. So thanks. thanks so, for, yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. I thought this was great. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Larry.